On today's episode, training volume and intensity distribution. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. back we have uh, our final installment of me reviewing some chapters from the book the science and practice of middle long distance running i have loved every chapter of this book and i've already come up with a few more ideas in future content because of this book but um, as i discussed in previous episodes we discussed the psychology of running we discussed the screening the movement screening and strength assessments for runners um, which were uh, various chapters within this book, and now we're doing this third chapter, which is all about training volumes and looking at the intensity distribution, which is making sure within your weekly training or as you're preparing for a race, making sure you've got the right um, ratio of running fast, running slow, running under threshold, and uh, just getting the balance right. And it sort of fits in with my conversation with my sister Zoe when she was doing a whole bunch of runs that she thought were slow runs, but it was kind of maxing her out. And um, I've got a lot of really good responses from that episode. Um, it's been quite popular and a lot of positive feedback. So it's along those similar lines, making sure you're getting that ratio right and balancing things out. And then in an upcoming episode, I'm going to interview Dr. Phil Hayes, who is one of the editors for this book. Um, uh, Rich Blagrove was the other editor and yeah, we're just going to have a chat. He's a sports scientist and a senior lecturer at um, Northumbria University and we're going to chat about the book and chat about a few things about runners and running and yeah, looking forward to that one. So within this chapter, let me describe the book. Within this chapter, it's um, pretty much using examples like elites as an example of how they distribute their intensities and what their training volumes are like because the overall the chapter is called um, training volume and intensity distribution among elite middle and long distance runners so there's a bit about that and in the introduction they say that there are several important variables when it comes to training and a training program so you have your training frequency how many days per week you're running the duration obviously or distance um, but then you're looking at the intensity of the runs, the intensity of the sessions, and the density of training in a given time period, and how much, how um, many of these variables are we monitoring as a runner? Like a lot of people have races, a lot of people preparing for 
10Ks, half marathons, uh, marathons, ultras. How often are you tracking how many times you're, you're running? I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people track their weekly mileage, but not a lot of people track their intensity of the runs and the density of their training. Um, so yeah, within those factors, um, they say that the aim of this chapter is to describe and analyze the training volume and training intensity distribution patterns that emerge from the scientific literature and training of these elite middle long distance runners. So it's kind of combining what the research tells us and also what the elites are doing and what the outcomes are when those elites are training a certain way. So following this chapter, they have a, um, a section that is the concept of training intensity distribution because how is the, what's the best way to quantify intensity? And we all know we can calculate, say, distance really well. We can say we ran 10Ks, but how intense that was is a little bit harder to measure, which is why I think just for the recreational runner, it's very uh, why we fall short with monitoring those sort of things. And so the chapter says, in order to quantify the training load conducted at different intensities, we a runner can um, work in different training zones according to, say, physiological factors. So they have, you can work at different, like a lactate threshold, which is your maximum steady state. You can look at um, ventilatory thresholds or say um, your percentage of maxima, maximum oxygen uptake, which is your VO2, so a certain percent of your VO2, or a percent of your maximum heart rate. I feel like that's probably one of the most common uh, methods. So calculate your maximum heart rate and then say, I'm going to work within 60% of my heart rate max, or I'm going to work between 80 and 90% of my heart rate max. Um, so those are what we call physiological factors. We're looking at uh, physiological changes in the body and we're kind of calculating the intensity based on those metrics. So we could do that or the chapter says we could use perceptual or subjective factors and this would be your RPE, your rate of perceived exertion. And that is um, usually on the Borg scale, I think it's like up to um, a scale of 0 to 21 or something. But you can just do it from 0 to 10 where... Um, I, I think the chapter goes into this, but um, so your perceived, your rate of perceived exertion is just this subjective internal feeling that you have when you complete a workout and say, I pushed myself to the absolute max, let's give me a 10, or um, I'm definitely not walking, I'm puffing, but it's very light, I feel like I could do this for a couple of hours, this would be probably a 4 out of 10 or a 3 or a 4 out of 10 intensity. And so it's a very quick, easy way to um, I guess, assign an intensity, but comes along with its inaccuracies as it's very subjective. Throughout the rest of this um, chapter, they talk about training zones or like how to get this training intensity distribution into categories. So zone one, zone two, and zone three. Now they suggest that um, there is this, what they call triphasic model that works with um, ventilatory thresholds and you essentially have to do like this lab test, I think it is. So what they call this incremental intensity test, um, to the best of my knowledge, if it's similar to like a VO2 max, they um, get you on a treadmill and they increase the speed, they increase the incline, and they just do a whole bunch of measurements around um, 
what your primary um, energy storage is. Like if, if you're mainly aerobic, when are you starting to switch to anaerobic and working out those phases. And once they have that, once they have that data, they can then assign uh, what your zone one is. So your zone one is something that's um, uh, below the first ventilatory threshold. Zone two refers to the intensities between the first and the second. Uh, and then zone three refers to any intensity conducted above your maximum steady state. And so uh, this would be very, very useful to have. Um, it's like it says, therefore, in order to calculate a particular training intensity distribution during a given training period, time of training conducted to each training zone is assessed to a specific intensity distribution. So you would say, okay, um, today it has me training 100% in zone one and the training duration is 60 minutes. Um, so then you can follow that calculation and follow that formula. So both the um, training intensity distribution and training periodization understood as the evolution of training volume and the distribution during a given season, both of these are essential factors in designing a training program for endurance runners. This is what you need. You kind of need not only knowing what your zone one, zone two, zone three is, but you also need a program that periodizes these into say week one, week two, week three, all the way down. Um, it builds up, it tapers off. And so you have that formula, you have that program. This is what gets the best results. And this is what all the elites do um, in order to calculate, assess, like accurately interpret what um, phases you're going through. Next in the chapter, they're talking about training intensity models, like certain models for you to follow. And they say, however, there's a lack of consensus regarding the, the right model, I guess you could say, um, requ that's required for optimizing both performance determinant factors and also performance itself, like how, um, how much you'll improve in a, in a race. Um, but they have a couple of models here. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. They say the traditional pyramid model is categorized uh, by decreasing the volume of training in zone one, two, and three respectively. Typically zone one consists of 80% of the training volume and the remaining 20% is performed in both zone two and zone three. So in this um, pyramid model, it seems to be the very classic 80-20 principle where 80% of your overall training volume should be done at a very low intensity, what they call zone one, and then leaving the rest, zone two and zone three, to be 20% of your training volume. So I think we're very familiar with that, but the only difference is zone one, uh, zone two and zone three are just combined as 20%. They don't really um, define that any further. Whereas in the polarized model, they say that, yes, again, 80% of your training volume is performed in zone one, while the remaining 20% is mostly conducted in zone three. So there's not a lot of zone two going on. It's very polarized. There's a lot of easy running 
but there's also uh, the harder efforts um, rather than, and they're almost like the zone two is yeah very very minimal so that's the second one the third one is the threshold model and it's characterized by higher amount of training volume in other models so greater than 20 percent is conducted in zone two um, they said they didn't really say how much they just said greater than 20 percent of your overall weekly mileage is done in that threshold model might be done for more track athletes um, potentially four and five is looking at the high volume low intensity model which is as it describes categorized by high amounts of training conducted in zone one and five is the low volume high intensity so characterized by high amounts of training conducted in zone three so you've got the pyramid model which is your classic 80 20 got your polarized model which is you know, still 80% low intensity, but that other 20% is quite quite um, intense in zone three. You got the threshold model where more than 20% is um, generated in zone two. Then you have the high volume, low intensity, and then the low volume, high intensity. So all of these are different models that you can choose from. Like a running coach could choose based on the athlete, based on what you have to prepare for. And like the, the start of this... Um, category talks about they say that there's a lack of consensus regarding which model is right for performance factors and performance itself so um that's where yeah we draw like the evidence is a little bit loose but that's where we draw on examples they did however manage to um talk about this systematic review so according to the results of a recent systematic review both the pyramid and the polarized model have successfully improved performance in distance at, in distance runners. So that's good to know. So that's that 80-20, general 80-20 rule. Um, and then they have an example. So um, Rob, Robinson et al. in 1991 found that following the preparation period, 13 nationally ranked male New Zealand runners, distance runners conducted a 96% of their total volume below maximum steady state and 4% above their steady state. So that's quite a significant amount. So um, we're looking at national runners from New Zealand having the training balance of 96% below max and then only 4% above maximum steady state. And they just go on to list a whole bunch of other um, elite examples Um and then they have like this one final one reported improvement in performance from who is this ham et al 2012 this was in like a the olympic 1500 meter um finals uh so this yeah this ham et al 2012 reported improvement in performance from three minutes 38 to three minutes 32 so like a six second difference over a two-year training period for an Olympic 1,500-meter finalist, supposedly due to a shift from more threshold-orientated to more of a polarized-orientated training intensity distribution model. Um, yeah, and so it just goes on to list a whole bunch of different examples, which is really nice to hear. Following in the chapter, they have um, ways to quantify these intensities, which I kind of just alluded to before, but they are saying that there are a few different ways to do so. One is to have... Um, have this uh, incremental intensity test done, which I described, um, which will identify the speed and heart rate associated with um, these intensities. So 
your respiratory gas analysis and heart rate monitoring. So you do this test and then they would gather data on you and see, okay, not only is this heart rate um, within these certain zones, but also the speed that you run um, is also contributed to these different zones. And so this might be useful for you if you are um, doing certain types of sessions. Um, so if you were to say do a intensity, uh, like a, a quick short interval session where you're doing say 100 meter repeats, um, it might not necessarily be accurate for you to work within your heart rate because your heart rate has a real delayed response to intensity. And it's very hard to calculate how fast to run in those 100 meters if you want to do say zone two or work in zone three and get your heart rate up to that level if it's a quick sprint. But if you do have this lab test and you have these um, uh, running speed calculated, it could tell you if you run at this certain speed, that's zone three. If you run at this certain speed, that is zone two, which is very useful for those quick sort of intervals because you have um, that really instant uh, accurate data. Whereas if you are doing, say, a longer duration type of exercise, Maybe speed might not be up, uh, like right up your alley. Maybe you want to focus more on heart rate. So you do have those two options. Um, the other thing that they recommend, like I said, is like the session where you calculate your rate of perceived exertion. So this method was created by Foster et al. in 2001. Consists of three training zones according to different levels of your adapted 10-point uh, Borg scale. So they're taking that 21-point Borg scale and and kind of adapting it to 10 points. <laughs> so zone one of your rate of perceived exertion would be somewhere between one and four out of 10. Your zone two would be five or six out of 10. And then your um, any RPE around seven to 10 is zone three. So that's really easy to, to kind of follow. So runners must complete their RPE training diary within 30 minutes after their training session. Because I think they've put that in because it's very hard to recall how intense a training session was like once a couple of hours has passed. You want a really accurate, um, as accurate as you can be. Uh, I think if you didn't want a lab test done, I think this is still just a very loosely but still worthwhile doing um, calculating your overall RPE for a particular session. It, it might need to um, calculate the overall average. Like if you wanted to get really um, creative with your sessions and you're doing say a short, or let's say you're doing like a warm up for about half an hour, then you're doing some sprints um, and then you finish those sprints with another say medium intensity sort of run for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. If you're combining a whole bunch of different intensities, I think you'd average, you'd calculate the average of that, um, in terms of your perceived exertion. And so they come up with a bunch of examples. So say, for example, during sessions involving high amount of changes in pace, uh, this is what they're, they're talking about when it comes to choosing which intensity um, distribution or which um, monitoring system to follow. So for example, during sessions involving high amount of changes of pace and short high intense intervals is recommended to use running speed derived um, rather than a heart rate derived approach as it may not reflect several changes in pace conducted during these sessions. However, a heart rate derived approach might be useful 
during a steady tempo run or a long interval session. Additionally, RPE measured may be reported at each part of the session in order to improve its precise uh, its precision as a training load indicator. For example, reporting RPE values for a not for a warm up, again for the interval training session, and then for the cool down separately, may be more valid and precise than just monitoring a single value for the whole session. So I guess that answers um, my question around calculating, I guess, the overall or averaging out the overall RPE. It's sometimes good to break it up into your warm-up um, session and cool down, which is really nice. And the other thing I found um, when it comes to RPE, it's a really nice uh, indicator because sometimes, let's just say you go for a 10K run at a, uh, five and a half minute pace that will feel different on a day where maybe it's warmer maybe you've had lack of recovery maybe lack of um, a change in diet change in nutrition um, maybe not sleeping as well maybe accumulating a lot of um, stress throughout the week so that same run that same 10k same pace on one week will feel totally different compared to that same distance, that same pace on another week, just because of all the um, stress factors and all the recovery factors and the weather. And so it's good to know that you do rate your RPE because you could say, oh, that felt like a, um, a five out of 10 today. Whereas down the track, if you do that again, it might be like, oh, that same run was about a seven and it's, completely different and your body will react differently because it's been more of a struggle. And so you can stick to the same pace and your training might say, oh, it's still within zone one, but you might actually slip into zone two or zone three and it's be totally different. So I'm glad that they offer in this chapter, it's good to follow the physiological parameters, but you might also want to combine on top of that these, um, RPE factors. And so in this little section, they say, in conclusion, the combination in the use of quantifying methods previously described can provide valuable information regarding the training process in middle and long distance runners. Then they go on throughout the chapter to talk about um, training periodization and intensity distribution in world-class runners. And they just go through a list of examples around 800 meters, 1500 meters, uh, the 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon examples, and just world-class athletes and what their volumes are like, what their intensity distributions are like. And um, it's really nice. I think it, it's beyond what this episode, this podcast episode entails, but it was a really nice read. It was good to see what sort of overall volumes people are doing um, and the results they are getting, like the... Um, when they change their intensity distributions and when they change their overall volumes. Um, yeah, it's good to see how much improvement they're actually making. I did highlight a few things in the half marathon and marathon events um, section because they, when we're talking about all these elites, they kind of categorize them into like steeplechase. They categorize them into like the um, 800 meter event. They categorize it into half marathons and marathons. So I thought I'd highlight a couple of things here. So regarding um, when they're talking about marathons and half marathons, regarding overall training characteristics in world-class marathoners, 
Um, they use this example of Ingrid Christensen and talked about her average training volume during a 15-week lead-up to the world uh, to her world record of two hours and twenty-one minutes and six seconds. Um, she achieved well. She achieved that in the nineteen eighty-five London Marathon. Um, so her overall training volume was one hundred and sixty-seven kilometers per week, and her intensity distribution was ninety ninety percent. 5% and 5% of the total running volume conducted in zone one, zone two, zone three, respectively. So in zone one, she was 90% or like 90.5. Zone two, she was 5% and zone three, she was 5.5%. So good to know those sort of examples. So um, at the end of this, they said overall, uh, once they go through all these other examples, overall, these runners conducted around about a 78% 12% and 10% of the total training volume in zone one, zone two, zone three. So they're very close to that 80-20 distribution and very close to that pyramid uh, intensity model, which was one of the first models that I described. They went on to talk a little bit about tapering and I thought I'd highlight this one. They said, for marathon runners, it could be recommended to reduce your training volume by 25% two weeks before the race and then reduce it by 50% in the competitive week and that was including the marathon competition itself so drop it by 25 percent then drop it by 50 percent when you're two weeks out and one week out respectively um, but when you drop it by 50 percent that one week you're also including that marathon competition as as part of that 50 percent so keep that in mind um, as a summary Distance running coaches are advised to quantify both the training volume and the training intensity distribution throughout the training process by means of implementing um, a specific method. So those methods that we discussed before, um, for example, following heart rate, following running speed or the rate of perceived exertion. In addition, it is recommended to use the a race pace based a race pace based approach to quantifying training volume and training intensity distribution during pre-competitive and competitive periods, which um, the race pace becomes more frequent. So if you are preparing for a race and you have a race pace in mind, it's good to use race pace um, like above or below or at race pace as a nice way of um, calculating certain, certain sessions. Uh, lastly, they said for longer distance events, so for marathons, the training volume has to be greater at intensities lower. So when they talk about sprinting, so they say uh, when they talk about like shorter distance events, one sprint session per week is recommended for 800 and 1500 meter runners and it, with their runners targeting track longer events, sprint training should also be presented throughout the season. So um involving some sort of sprint training. They also said a long run each week, as well as frequent competitions are observed in all events at any time during the season. Running sessions should be combined with two sessions per week of strength training. So it's good that they add that in there. During a pre-competitive and competitive periods, runners targeting events other than the marathon have to decrease their training volume and run at race pace or even faster during training. Marathoners should increase their total training volume and conduct greater volumes of race pace. If you're um, at a race D 
distance that's shorter than a marathon, they say it's sometimes good to um, decrease the overall training volume and run at intensities at or greater than race pace. But for a marathon, it seems that increasing the overall volume and conducting um, like your training sessions should be only set up to race pace, not beyond race pace, not faster than race pace. Um, it seems like that's a, a nice way to go, which is my interpretation of that chapter. So as I summarize, just a bit of a recap, when it comes to um, training distributions, um, it seems like that 80-20 distribution is still well recognized in not only the research, but it's also well established or well executed in elite athletes. You do have that choice to um, choose between the 80-20, um, like that period kind of um, model or a periodized kind of model where you're um, working at predominantly zone one and zone three rather than zone two. But monitoring these intensities is one of the main lessons that I want to take out of this episode. And it was um, following things like heart rate, following things like your rate of perceived exertion and monitoring things like speed. Uh, you can have it lab tested or you can just do it yourself. Doing it yourself is obviously less accurate, requires a bit of subjective interpretation. But like I said, um, the subjective side of things can be really nicely um factored in for situations like weather and situations like recovery and situations like just overtraining, um, that will start to show up in your perceived exertion. Um, so it's good to have the combination of two. If you can't get a lab test, um, you can just briefly, um, or just, uh, calculate your heart rate max and then just build off the, um, percentages of that. Um, I still think it's a good system to follow, and if you notice that you aren't recovering or maybe you are getting injured, maybe you can um, get a lab test or maybe you can um, downgrade those heart rate percentages uh, a little bit more so that you're training a little bit lower intensity. So um, they're the kind of key takeaways, um, making sure, well, I think it's good to know that those training distributions are out there in the science and also in elite athletes. And yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting to Dr. Phil Hayes. Um, I, at the time of recording, it's in about three or four days time, they're going to have a chat to him. We're going to chat to, uh, about a couple of other chapters within this book and chat about um, actually creating the book and editing the book and what he thinks about uh, when it comes to training. I've got a couple of questions around um, tapering and some like accurate ways or what his recommendations are for monitoring training loads and yeah, any other misconceptions to educate runners? I've just got a couple of those questions. So yeah, looking forward to bringing you that. And that kind of will bring the book to a bit of a close. Um, so it's kind of a bit of a theme over the last month or so. And I'm always here. I always love promoting good material. So this book was right up the alley. Like I said, the episode one of this kind of theme, this book is kind of like the podcast form. Um, and it is tailored a little bit more towards health professionals and especially running coaches. I think every running coach should have a book like this. Um, but there's a lot of key takeaways that runners can take out of this, um, this, this sort of material because we all want to train smarter. And I know because you're listening to this podcast, you're one that's um, not just like your average runner who just idly goes by. You want the right information. You want to execute with the right information. And so that's why... 
I thought this book was right up our alley. Um, yeah, so like I said, looking forward to interviewing uh, Dr. Phil Hayes. And as I sign off, remember, every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.